Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME Clinical Chart Review. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. Indiana University School of Medicine and CME Outfitters, LLC, gratefully acknowledge an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This CME CE certified activity is funded in part by CME Outfitters, LLC. This activity is titled, A Case of Connecting the Dots, Improving Diagnosis and Management of Fibromyalgia. Our moderator for this activity is Dr. Leslie M. Arnold. Our distinguished guest faculty for this activity is Dr. Don L. Goldenberg. Dr. Arnold is a professor of psychiatry and director of the Women's Health Research Program at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. Arnold has disclosed that she received grant research support from Allergan Incorporated, Bowringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Cypress Bioscience Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. She serves as a consultant to Allergan Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bowringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Cypress Bioscience Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventus, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated, Theravance Incorporated, UCB Pharma, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Goldenberg is the Chief of Rheumatology at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Newton, Massachusetts, and a Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Goldenberg has disclosed that he serves as a consultant to Eli Lilly and Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 460. Over the next hour, Dr. Arnold and Dr. Goldenberg will review a patient case study and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to, one, identify assessment and diagnostic indicators that differentiate fibromyalgia from other pain disorders, and two, define the role of multimodal and multidisciplinary approaches to the management of fibromyalgia. Presentation slides, along with a patient chart discussed during today's activity, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 460 or call 877-CME-PROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, and welcome to today's Neuroscience CME chart review session entitled, A Case of Connecting the Dots, Improving Diagnosis and Management of Fibromyalgia. I'm Dr. Leslie Arnold, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Don Goldenberg for this educational activity. Our format today focuses on translating evidence to practice, and we're going to present a case, work through the diagnosis and management of the patient, and ask our audience to participate as well. Throughout the case presentation, we'll be referencing the evidence that may affect the care of our patient. Let's get started. Our learning objectives today are to identify the assessment and diagnostic indicators that differentiate fibromyalgia from other pain disorders, 
and define the role of multimodal and multidisciplinary approaches to the management of fibromyalgia. Don, I'd like you to begin by presenting Jane, our patient case today. Uh, sure, Leslie. So Jane is a uh, 48-year-old Caucasian female who I recently uh, evaluated. Uh, she's a married school teacher with children who are 15 and 18, and she came to see me with a complaint of widespread musculoskeletal pain. <clears throat> In fact, she uh, used a term I, I heard all over. In addition, she reported that she was very exhausted, not sleeping well, specifically waking up a number of times during the night, uh, heart, having trouble getting back to sleep. Sometimes she woke up from the pain, sometimes spontaneously. She stated that she was exhausted by the middle of the afternoon and uh, unable to concentrate in her teaching role for the, her remaining classes. She also reported daily headaches. They had been intermittent in the past, but now they were coming almost on a daily basis. I asked her to describe them, and she stated that they seemed to be coming from her neck area involving the frontal and occipital region. She did have a history of uh, chronic constipation. When we talked in more detail, uh, I asked her when the pain started, and she felt that it started approximately two years ago after she had a nonspecific viral illness. She was febrile for about two days. Uh, she didn't see her doctor at the time, wasn't put on antibiotics. The pain seemed to begin in the neck and shoulder area, and she thought she had strained that area in an exercise class a few days earlier. But within a few weeks, the pain kind of spread and became very generalized. Um, she reported that after about six months, she was always in pain all over her body, although there was some variability in the uh, worst areas and how much it was bothering her. I asked her if she uh, noted any joint swelling, and she said that the joints to her felt swollen, but she or her primary doctor who had examined her didn't see any visible swelling. Uh, she stated that her muscles felt sore and achy, and she quoted, uh, like, I've been beaten up uh, throughout my body. She stopped going to the gym, and she had been a regular exerciser because of the chronic pain, and within the year and a half, she had uh, gained about 15 pounds. She tried to go back to her uh, exercise class, but every time she went back, she said she, she felt worse, so got discouraged and, and then um, stopped going to the gym altogether. Her prior history was of note that she had, did have a, bouts of anxiety and depression, both in college and uh, after her first child. At age 27, she reported that she had been in a fairly serious motor vehicle accident and had suffered um, a concussion and actually fractured her leg. She was in a rehabilitation center for a, a total of six weeks, but felt that she made a complete recovery and, as I mentioned, had been quite active and exercising regularly. Interestingly, she also had a history of uh, quite severe migraine headaches when she was a teenager up to about her uh, 20s, and then they decreased in, in the last 10 years. She was only having a headache about once a year. We know it's interesting um, that she reports prior episodes of anxiety and depression, and this is a finding that we also see in many of our 
patients. I wondered if you evaluated her for any kind of current problem with her mood or any current problems with anxiety. Yeah, I didn't uh, apply any formal instrument for that, but I, I asked her, and she was accompanied by her husband, about whether you know she felt depressed or anxious. She stated that she didn't, uh, and used the. I, I think if I remember the comment, she said, "I'm just frustrated and, and worried about all this pain, but I, I I don't feel it's my mood." Her husband stated that uh, she had become quote, irritable, and use the term, I think she's feeling uh, overwhelmed. I asked her about any uh, illicit drugs, smoking, et cetera, and there was no history of that. She had uh, occasionally had wine on the weekends, and that was it. The other part of her evaluation is uh, before I had seen her, uh, of note, she had seen two other physicians, and, and they basically told her they couldn't find anything wrong, and I think that added to her discouragement. They did some laboratory testing and x-rays, and I didn't have the results of that, but they uh, told me that, she told me that they told her they were unremarkable. And then she was referred both to a neurologist by one uh, physician and to a psychiatrist uh, uh, to, by the other one, and uh, basically she hadn't seen those doctors yet at the time she had seen me. Um, her uh, One of her primary doctors had put her on fluoxetine, and she had taken that, I, I think, for just about a week and stated she had become uh, agitated, jittery, and stopped the medication. At the time that I saw her, she was taking about two or three ibuprofen uh, about every six to eight hours and commented that she was getting minimal relief from that. She had been using supplements even before I saw her, probably for about six months uh, as supplied by her personal trainer, and um, I didn't know what the supplements were. Her family history was non-contributory as far as uh, any previous similar symptoms or musculoskeletal or, or rheumatic diseases. She did report that her uh, mother uh, had a history of major depressive disorder and had been hospitalized for that approximately 10 years ago. On her general physical exam, she was uh, uh, slightly overweight, BMI was 26. Uh, I didn't find anything in her skin or head and neck. Her heart and lungs were normal. I did a complete joint examination, and uh, there was no evidence of any swelling or deformities. Her range of motion was quite good. I didn't find any specific focal neurologic abnormalities, but she did have a lot of tenderness around a lot of different muscle groups. Well, that's an interesting comment. I wondered uh, whether you do a tender point exam on your patients and um, you know, how you approach the diagnosis of fibromyalgia in general. Well, yes, uh, I, I do do a tender point examination for two reasons. Uh, one reason is the original American College of Rheumatology classification criteria for fibromyalgia uh, published in 1990 are based on having chronic widespread pain, but also having a certain number of tender points, which were 11 of 18 tender points. And these criteria have been utilized both in clinical trials in fibromyalgia, but often many rheumatologists, including myself, 
do utilize these in making a diagnosis. It should be pointed out that, as with all classification criteria, they were never meant to be used in individual patient office diagnosis, although certainly we often do apply such classification criteria to help confirm a diagnosis. My other personal feeling is that uh, the tender point exam is, is part of a, uh, of a physical examination in people with musculoskeletal pain. I think everybody who's complaining about a lot of pain throughout their body needs a joint examination to be sure rheumatoid arthritis or other inflammatory arthritis or osteoarthritis are not present. And, and also the tender point examination helps to confirm that their pain is not coming from joints but coming from muscle and soft tissue. We do now have an alternative, basically, because just recently published, uh, there have been uh, what are now called the American College of Rheumatology Clinical Diagnostic Criteria for Fibromyalgia. And these criteria do not require a tender point examination, but the gold standard to see if these criteria uh, fit quite well with fibromyalgia are the previous 1990 criteria, which did require uh, a tender point examination. These new criteria are based on the symptom of widespread pain and a symptom severity scale, which looks at other uh, symptoms that are common in fibromyalgia, such as fatigue and sleep issues, and combines these two to, to have a, a new criteria based on a certain amount of pain and a certain amount of symptom severity. But using such criteria, they actually correlate quite well with a tender point examination. So although I still do a tender point examination in individual patients and uh, I'm comfortable doing it, I think particularly for clinicians who are not comfortable or are not trained in doing a tender point examination, this new diagnostic criteria will, will prove useful. It does seem that the patient has both widespread pain as well as a number of these common symptoms that occur in patients with fibromyalgia, especially her report of fatigue and sleep disturbances. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, fibromyalgia is not just a pain disorder, and these other symptoms are almost universal and really should be considered part of the, the diagnosis. So 80 to 90% of people have the exhaustion. They often complain of morning stiffness, sleep disturbances, as our patient headache, uh, often have, as she may, irritable bowel, and uh, certainly mood disturbances are, are common here. So I think it's part of the diagnosis. Well, let's try to summarize the critical steps that you take in the diagnostic process for patients such as Jane. Yeah, so the, the, the key cardinal symptom, again, is this chronic widespread pain for uh, uh, at least three months. It's often much longer when we see patients, and I think these associated symptoms like the fatigue and the headaches and the sleep and mood disturbances. Inherent in a diagnosis of any disorder like fibromyalgia is that you have excluded other conditions that could present with chronic widespread pain. And I always think of this as being very much clinician-dependent. If, if a clinician is 
seen lots of patients with fibromyalgia and is comfortable with this, I don't think they need to necessarily think about a large shopping list to exclude multiple other disorders and can probably focus on a few limited conditions. The other thing is this duration of time. There really aren't a lot of disorders that present with months of chronic widespread pain and these other symptoms that don't become obvious if another disease is present. Certainly, the physical exam, as I mentioned, with a uh, joint and point exam, uh, a neurologic examination. Uh, I do some selected laboratory tests, usually very few. I always feel it's important to evaluate formally or informally the sleep and mood. And uh, then I think you can make a presumptive diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Well, you mentioned that you, you don't usually do um, screening serologic tests. What, what are the tests that you do not recommend that clinicians get routinely for ev evaluation of fibromyalgia? Well, the only test that I kind of think is a fairly appropriate screening test would be something like a sedimentation rate or a CRP, which should be uh, no normal in this condition, possibly thyroid tests, some basic thyroid tests. But as you mentioned, I, I think a problem is if, if doctors are ordering so-called screening rheumatologic tests, like an anti-nuclear antibody and a rheumatoid factor, because they have a, a high false positive rate, unless there's a significant clinical suspicion of a systemic immunologic disorder, uh, generally speaking, they'll lead people down the wrong pathway and unnecessary testing and unnecessary referrals. Uh, other controversial testing that some people believe is useful, which I don't, it would include vitamin D levels. Some, there is some evidence that this might correlate with pain, but I think there's more evidence that vitamin D does not correlate with levels of pain. Uh, some unusual excess thyroid testing, uh, and unless there's real suspicion for uh, an infection, a chronic infection like Lyme disease or certain types of viral serologies, they too tend to be misleading. What are some of the common disorders that we should consider in the differential diagnosis, and how do these disorders differ from fibromyalgia? There are some rheumatic conditions that certainly present with, um, with uh, chronic widespread pain and, uh, and, and uh, fatigue, um, uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, certain types of uh, spondyloarthropathies. Generally speaking, they will have obviously abnormal physical findings. Again, that's why it's certain, certainly so important to have a, uh, a, a good physical examination. Again, generally laboratory tests like the SED rate or the CRP will be helpful. Viral, nonspecific viral illnesses can present like this, but again, by the time we see patients, you know, a condition like infectious mononucleosis or some other chronic viral infection would uh, usually have gone away. Uh, a life-threatening condition like uh, uh, HIV infection would have become manifest. One condition that I think can be a little bit more problematic is polymyalgia rheumatica, because that certainly can present with widespread stiffness, although not as much pain in fibromyalgia, and a lot of fatigue. There's not 
a lot to see on physical exam, like in fibromyalgia. Tip-offs there, usually it starts in people well over the age of 60. Um, and again, generally speaking, um, the uh, SED rate and CRP are, are extremely elevated. I think in, in some instances where it can be a, a bit difficult, it's not uh, untenable to even give a patient sort of in that ballpark a trial with low doses of prednisone, which generally never work well in fibromyalgia and, and are, are, are significantly helpful in a brief period of time in polymyalgia rheumatica. So I think those are the major conditions that I would think about. Well, let's see if I can summarize the key points regarding the diagnosis in our patient, Jane. So she presents with chronic widespread pain, a long duration, much longer than three months, and diffuse tenderness on exam, but otherwise an unremarkable physical exam. She also has other symptoms that are typically associated with fibromyalgia, such as fatigue and sleep disturbance. She also has other pain syndrome, like a headache. And um, constipation is also something that we commonly see in patients with fibromyalgia who have comorbid irritable bowel syndrome. What's interesting about her history, too, is that she has a past history of depression and anxiety. These disorders are commonly comorbid in patients with fibromyalgia. And also, she has a family history of um, major depressive disorder. And in our family study, we did find that mood disorders do significantly co-aggregate with fibromyalgia, suggesting that perhaps there's a pathophysiologic link between mood disorders and fibromyalgia. So now that uh, we've reviewed her presentation, and uh, I think we can conclude that she is a pretty typical fibromyalgia patient. I think it's now important to consider how we might manage a patient like Jane and to sort of think through the different steps that we might take in her management. What would be the very first thing that you would do with Jane? Well, I, I think it's very important to educate and inform Jane or any other patient with uh, fibromyalgia. This is a confusing and controversial condition, and certainly uh, uh, we, we, we need to spend time with any illness to give people a um, uh, feeling about what the condition is all about and, and how to deal with it. And I think it's even more uh, in disorders like this, which are a little bit hard to pinpoint at times, tend to uh, be, a lot of doctors are a little uncomfortable discussing that. So a heavy dose of information and education, uh, both uh, to the patient directly and possibly the husband and the family, giving them some sources of uh, informa information either on the web or uh, handing some material, and there's some good patient material out there now, uh, I think is a start. And then I also would discuss in, in, in great detail, even before medication changes, non-pharmacologic management, uh, specifically the importance of her getting back to exercise, which she had been done, doing certainly for years. And I think sometimes somebody like this stopping exercise uh, is uh, leads to even more problems. So I, I need to encourage her to get back, uh, but how she does that might need to change, and she may need to be a bit more um, slow in, in going back to an exercise program or, or get some uh, guidance. As you alluded to, there, there certainly may be some um, significant uh, ongoing mood disturbances here, and if I don't feel that I have as much 
time or expertise in discussing this with her, I may send her to one of my mental health professional colleagues. Right, because I think that the identification and treatment of these kinds of comorbid disorders can be very helpful in the management of patients. Absolutely. You know, I think we we can review some medication options for our patient now. Uh, the good news is we now have three FDA-approved medications for the management of fibromyalgia. Um, two of these medications, duloxetine and milnacipran, are serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And the third is pregabalin, which is an alpha-2-delta ligand. We believe that the SNRIs may be working by enhancing serotonin and norepinephrine in the descending inhibitory pain pathways, while pregabalin might be working to reduce the release of pro-nociceptive transmitters like substance P and glutamate and reducing ascending pain signals. I don't know what you think, Don, about which way to go with our patient as far as first line for her, given her history. She clearly um, has maybe some anxiety or a depression in her past, um, but it looks like she didn't tolerate the fluoxetine that was tried. She developed some uh, feelings of jitteriness. Um, would that affect your choice here in this case? Yeah, I, I think it, it might make me a little uh, a little wary about introducing the SNRI since they, they, they might have that uh, same issue. It uh, doesn't mean they couldn't be used. I, I might uh, lean first possibly to pregabalin in this situation. She certainly has a significant uh, history of sleep disturbances. Also, some of this numbness, tingling, burning uh, issues uh, might be ideal for that medication. I, I also would talk to her about the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, they could moderate doses of analgesics, simple analgesics, may be helpful, but there's not a lot of evidence for that. I would talk to her about these supplements also and try and get a little bit more information about them, particularly if I'm going to introduce uh, another medication because potential cross-side effects. We don't have evidence that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or corticosteroids are at all helpful. And the other thing I would discourage her from initiating would be opioid therapy, since there's, again, very little, there's no evidence, I would say, that opioids are helpful in this condition. And there's some emerging evidence, uh, as you know, with the concept of uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which almost is, is somewhat of a fibromyalgia parallel condition. So I would try and avoid that. Are there any other medications that we might consider in our patient, maybe some that are not FDA-approved, but maybe for which there is? Evidence? Well, in addition to the three FDA medications, uh, um, there are some old standbys. Uh, the tricyclic antidepressants, particularly low doses of amitriptyline, uh, have been around for a long period of time. This is a relatively younger woman. I might avoid that in somebody 20 years older, however, and they might be a reasonable thing to consider at nighttime. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, SSRIs can be reasonable, but with her experience with fluoxetine, I would be concerned about the same issue happening. So I, I think I would probably start with monotherapy, a single drug, and I probably would favor using one of the medications that there's, there's certainly a, a more evidence for. Have you ever 
combined any of these medications, let's say combine an SNRI with something like pre-Kaplan? I have, uh, and, you know, I, I think there is some emerging evidence. Unfortunately, I, I can't point to any clinical trials right now in regard to that, but both uh, I and some of my colleagues have used them, and that might be a, a very good consideration. Rather than sometimes ramping up one of the medications, sometimes using polypharmacy with maybe two of the approved agents, such as duloxetine in the morning in low dose and pregabalin at night, and a modest dose could be a useful alternative. Well, I think those are very good options. Actually, I want to give our audience an opportunity now to ask some questions about our case chain. I also wanted to note that we have provided additional slides that review common treatment options for fibromyalgia and their side effects. So while we're waiting to take audience questions, I'd like to let our audience know that there are Additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme.com. And at the conclusion of this question and answer session, you will automatically be redirected to this site. And I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. We've already received several questions. Thank you very much for submitting these. And I'd like to begin um, with a question that I actually got by email. Um, a participant who wasn't able to join us, um, um, he mentioned going through the step, stepwise treatment slides that he thought that cognitive behavioral therapy actually should be uh, more universally applied to patients, saying that um, there is a lot of um, his evidence, anyway, from his experience that reviewing um, antecedents or patterns in people's lives that contribute to the onset or severity or duration of symptoms of fibromyalgia can be very helpful. Um, I totally agree with that comment. I think for busy primary care physicians, and uh, sometimes it is difficult to apply cognitive, formal cognitive behavioral therapy to our patients and sometimes difficult to find therapists in the community. Um, but I include these kinds of discussions about fibromyalgia in general under the broader term education, that it is very important to, to teach patients about uh, their condition and what might be contributing to the course of their symptoms, and uh, to refer patients for more formal cognitive behavioral therapy when the patients really do seem to be struggling um, with their function or coping with the symptoms. Um, there are now some great online resources for patients. There is something called the Fibro Guide, um, which was developed by the University of Michigan researchers and clinicians, um, which presents patients with a self-management program, introducing them to cognitive behavioral therapy techniques as well as um, exercise uh, incorporation into their lives. Uh, Don, do you have any other comments about that? You know, I, I agree fully, and, you know, the question is, how much time can uh, practitioners give? And, and these patients do require a lot of time. They, they often have received a lot of misinformation too. So often you, you do need uh, uh, support individuals to do that for you. Right. Um, another question that has come in, um, you know, give as far as first line agents and i know this is a common question how did how does one choose among the different possible medications that we now have available to us um i think we addressed that a little bit in our discussion of jane trying to focus in on 
um, her particular combination of symptoms and how that might um, help us select a treatment as well as her past experience with prior treatments. Um, so in her case, she did have, it looked like some problems tolerating an SSRI. Doesn't mean that she wouldn't tolerate another trial of a different uh, medication in that class or in the SNRI class. Um, but also in addition to that experience uh, with her sleep disturbance, I think uh, you discussed maybe trying the alpha-2 delta ligand or pregabalin uh, as a first line in her case. But how do you go, go about, Don, choosing your first medication? Well, I, I think you, you should think about what, what are the major uh, domains that that individual patient is complaining at the time. And <clears throat> as with Jane, and maybe her prior experience with medications will play a role. There's no easy answer to it. As we had talked about, uh, some of the you know, the older agents, even though they're not uh, FDA-approved, including low doses of amitriptyline or at nighttime are a reasonable thing and are very inexpensive. But I think often uh, it requires uh, more art and science and being flexible and willing to maneuver. And it's also very important, I think, uh, again, to try and start low and go slow. Again, that may be also using some off-label doses, but uh, I think because the side effects of these medications are, are often difficult for some of these patients to tolerate, I, I would prefer to start with a low dose and give the patients a chance to get acclimated and, and, and move up from there. Another question we got about pregabalin was whether we give pregabalin at bedtime. Um, this participant noted that there seems to be a lot of sedation with this agent and then asked how the drug affects sleep. Well, we did share with you a little bit of evidence about the effects of pregabalin on sleep quality, and the clinical trials did consistently show that pregabalin improved sleep quality and reduced sleep disturbance, and that's one of the, the beneficial effects of this medication, although um, its effects on sleep are not on the label for fibromyalgia because sleep um, outcomes were secondary outcomes in all of the clinical trials. But yet that is an important um, aspect of this particular drug. Um, because it is sedating, especially as you initiate the treatment with pregabalin, we tend to begin it just at bedtime. Now that is off-label because if you look at the recommendations on the label, it's recommended that you begin pregabalin um, as a BID dose. Um, of 75 milligrams BID is what's recommended on the label. We rarely do that with our patients now in the clinic. Um, we found that it goes much better if you begin just at a bedtime dose, either 50 milligrams or 75 milligrams at bedtime, and then follow the patient uh, to assess their response. And if they were tolerating that all right and not getting a full effect either on sleep or pain, then we would go ahead and increase the dose, again, keeping it just at bedtime. Um, until we uh, improve their sleep enough and pain enough during the night, and then we can begin to think about adding a daytime dose if necessary. Um, as we discussed in the case with Jane, and you pointed out, Don, that sometimes what you will do is you know, use maybe alpha-2 delta ligand, such as pregabalin at bedtime, and then add an SNRI during the day. So I think there are different ways to, to deal with some of the, the, you know, the positive uh, qualities of a medication as well as some of the side effects. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree completely. And again, uh, unfortunately, sometimes 
you know, if we only stick with the labeling, we, we may not give our, our, our clinical art form as much uh, credence as possible. And uh, as you say, Leslie, I would usually also start with these med that pregabalin at nighttime. And, I, and I, on the other hand, I typically use uh, either duloxetine or milnasprin in the morning as a starting dose at breakfast. So um, hopefully clinicians, as they get comfortable with these medications, will, will also figure out in an individual patient how best to utilize each medication. Right. Um, another question, do patients with fibromyalgia have low serotonin and low growth hormone levels? Well, what we do know um, in some of the studies that have been done is that uh, there is evidence that fibromyalgia patients compared to normal controls have lower levels of the serotonin metabolites in their cerebral spinal fluid. And they also have low levels of metabolites of norepinephrine and dopamine as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, we... Uh, we believe that this data suggests that there is probably some dysfunction in the serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine systems in the nervous system. And, you know, that's why we believe these medications that enhance serotonin and norepinephrine, like duloxetine and milnasoprine, seem to be effective in patients with fibromyalgia because those neurotransmitters are very important in the descending inhibitory pain pathways. Um, as far as a low-growth hormone, you know, there is some evidence that um, there is decrease in growth hormone secretion in patients with fibromyalgia compared with normal controls. And this has led to some trials looking at uh, affecting growth hormone levels, but it's not generally um, recommended uh, for the patients uh, with fibromyalgia at this time. Don, would you agree with that? I, I would, and I, and I would also add uh, sometimes clinicians hear that assaying uh, serotonin growth hormone or uh, sort of hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system is a useful thing in an individual patient. And I don't think we can state that. Uh, certainly the state of the art uh, would not suggest that. So for research purposes, we do know that there are a number of neuroendocrine abnormalities, not across the board, however, and, uh, and they're important as we go further in understanding this complicated condition, but for uh, a clinical testing or basing um, uh, medication on such testing, I don't think we're at that stage. I'd like to take a break now and ask our operator if there are any live callers who would like to ask a question. And just a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a phone question, simply press star then one. And it appears we do have a few questions queued up. First, we'll go to uh, George uh, Zertko from Warren, Michigan. Go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, um, could you discuss the relationship between uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome and if they're comorbid, as has been reported? That's a great question, George. And um, yes, they are highly comorbid. In fact, you know, there is some evidence from family and twin studies that these disorders are actually more similar than not. And many of us do believe that they are on a continuum um, so that they're not as distinct as once was believed. Um, in fact, you know, many of the treatments that we are using for fibromyalgia may in fact be helpful for some patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, and there are studies going on now evaluating that. Um, Don, would you have anything else to offer? No, I, you're right, George. It's a, you know, very important. Uh, I was so interested in that we did a study years ago where we went into a 
Boston chronic fatigue uh, clinic uh, patient population. We, we uh, everybody had uh, met the CDC criteria at the time for chronic fatigue syndrome, and then we simply asked patients if they had pain. 75% said they had chronic widespread pain. Every one of those patients met the 1990 ACR classification criteria for fibromyalgia. So, you know, I think rather than splitting apart these uh, syndromes, we should embrace their similarities and better understand them. The treatment would be the same. Well, you know, it's interesting in that um, we've made a lot of uh, progress in identifying both medication and non-pharmacologic treatments for fibromyalgia. There has been less study in chronic fatigue syndrome, which is um, interesting. There has been, you know, there have been, actually, if you really look at the literature, very few trials of, um, very few well-done trials of treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and so I think think we suspect that they might respond to similar treatments, but we actually really have very little evidence for that. Would there be any symptoms or things to distinguish the two, if possible? What we do in our chronic fatigue syndrome studies that we're doing right now is we actually um, sort of make an assessment of what is the more troublesome or problematic symptom for the patient. Is it their pain or fatigue? Mm -hmm. Because the comorbidity is so high. Um, so if, if it's the fatigue that's really the most troublesome problem, the most disabling symptom, and they meet the other, you know, CDC criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome, then, you know, we would consider that problem as the most important to address. But, um, you know, as Don said, there's such high comorbidity that, um, you know, you're likely seeing both problems. The thing about fatigue, one of the issues, and this, this is true even for um, conditions such as major depressive disorder where fatigue is also a common symptom, you know, fatigue seems to be a little bit more resistant to treatment, um, a little bit more challenging for us to, to see relief of fatigue, even in our fibromyalgia patients um, where we can get the pain under control. Sometimes the fatigue is much more difficult for us to resolve. So clearly we need to of, you know, do a little bit more work in helping people with fatigue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And our next audio question comes to us from Lois Dunnigan. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Uh, thank you very much for that overview. And hi, Leslie. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I want to ask a question about supposing we decide to do the tender point manual survey. Yes. And we're going to ask the patients to tell us uh, their level of pain. Do we explain a scale to them, uh, 0 to 10, or do we uh, simply ask them to rate it on a scale of 0 to 10 because many of our patients feel their pain is a 12? Right. Are you talking about while you're doing the tender point exam? Exactly. Well, according to if you follow the American College of Rheumatology um, criteria exactly, the the way that that is described is that you simply have to ask the patient whether they experienced any pain. So they are not, it's not necessary to rate their pain. Um, so it's simp a simple yes, no All right. with the palpation, whether they had any pain. Um, and so that's the American College of Rheumatology. Now, sometimes we use the tender point exam as an outcome measure in clinical trials, um, not consistently, but sometimes we do. And in those cases, if we use the manual tender point survey, 
That particular survey uh, does require you to ask patients to rate their pain on a 0 to 10 scale. Um, so I think it depends on how you're going to use the tender point exam. But if you're just using it for diagnostic purposes, all the patient needs to do is say yes, no. I understand. So uh, what would you say the cutoff would be, though, if you were using the scale? Well, you know, Don, I think in the, in the American College of Rheumatology uh, 1990 study, was there a cutoff there? Um, um, it, 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 I'm a little confused. That as you're saying, Leslie, that it, there was no pain severity. It was just number of tender point, and the, the you know the, the 11 of 18 mm -hmm. on a statistical receiver operating curve was chosen. Um, people, and that's been a criticism of the tender manual tender point examination. As you said, we're not really scoring for severity. It, it's uh, it. it what makes 11 versus 9 versus 8 versus 12 versus 13. Right. But again, according to the original criteria, it was all you had to say is 11 of 18. Again, these are nine pair of bilateral symmetrical tender points mm -hmm. were painful with four kilograms per centimeter squared of pressure. So it was just any pain. They any didn't pain. have to rate. So does that answer your question? Uh, yes. I, I recently heard... Uh, an average, uh, I heard a tender point manual survey where uh, you were to score the number of tender points that you were examining for that were uh, two or above. Right. So that is the manual tender with. point you're referring, yes, to the manual tender point survey, That's which correct. is a little different than the American College of Rheumatology criteria in terms of how it's rated. So, some, so if you want to use the manual tender point and use that as your guide, I think that's okay. But, um, but just so you know, if you, the American College of Rheumatology just requires the presence of it. It doesn't require a specific uh, score on a 0 to 10 scale. That's great. That answers my question. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. We'll now move on to the side of Carol Weinberg. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. <clears throat> yes, I was told three years ago by a rheumatologist that a uh, prominent medical center that they considered uh, fibromyalgia to be primarily a um, affective disorder, and uh, I wasn't sure uh, uh, then, and I'm even less sure now whether this is a, uh, a fair view. Well, you know, I think it's an important issue that has come up a lot over the years, and I. I think that it comes up because there is such a high comorbidity with um, affective disorders, mood or anxiety disorders. Um, but I, th I think with the family study that we did, um, demonstrated for us anyway that they are not the same condition, that mood disorders and fibromyalgia are distinct, although they might share some pathophysiologic links. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising since neurotransmitters such as serotonin and norepinephrine certainly are important in mood regulation as they are in pain modulation. So it's not surprising that we see the comorbidity. But in our family study, you know, we found that um, we could distinct, that these disorders were distinct. They did co-aggregate in family members. Um, but they were clearly distinct. Um, and also, you know, not 100% of patients with fibromyalgia have mood or anxiety disorders. So it isn't universal in the population. 
Um, and as we as we learn more about pain and the central nervous system um, and all the evidence that we've seen with some of our neuroimaging findings, I think it really again uh, underscores um, how distinct these conditions are. Again, although there is probably some overlap. If we look at neuroimaging studies of patients with fibromyalgia with depression and those without, um, what you see is you see the augmentation of pain processing in both patient groups, but in the depressed group, you also see additional activations in the amygdala, which is typical for depression in general. So, um, you know, just treating depression isn't necessarily going to resolve the pain. Um, So I, I think the more we learn about pain processing the nervous system, I think it'll become clearer more generally that we're not just talking about a mood disturbance here. Right. Thank um, you. Oh, anyway. go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. I don't know, Don, you wanted to say anything else. All right. Well, okay. no, I mean, uh, of course, that's the million-dollar conundrum that, that all of us in this area, and I'm sure many clinicians have been dealing with it. It is difficult, but... You know, I, I would now uh, object to the fact that people call fibromyalgia a uh, affective disorder. Uh, probably uh, only 30 to 40 percent of people with fibromyalgia, when they're seen in the clinic uh, and sent to a psychiatrist and have a structured interview, actually meet criteria for having a current psychiatric illness. Um, and if you look through all chronic pain disorders, low back pain, migraine, et cetera, this overlap is, is extremely similar. And, and again, you know, for a rheumatologist to say this is an affective disorder, it would be the same thing as a neurologist to say migraine is an affective disorder or a back specialist to say back pain. We need to, again, understand a very close relationship of pain and mood, but we also should be able to understand that there are some differences too. Yes. As a psychiatrist, I I didn't quite buy what he was saying because it had not been my experience that I I gained that impression from most of my patients. And and it's so important, too, because as Leslie and I uh, teach, uh, you know, no specialty really has taken ownership. So here, you know, on, on this conference, there's a psychiatrist, Leslie, and a rheumatologist, and, you know, fibromyalgia tends to fall between the cracks of medicine and psychiatry. Right, that's true. Well, I'd like to go back now to our our web questions. Um, uh, One of our participants asked about the role of narcotic agents in these patients. And I know, uh, Don, that you discussed um, the use of opiates in general in in the population, the fact that we have, you know, basically no evidence of efficacy, although if you look at patient surveys, they are commonly used to treat fibromyalgia. Um, there's been some recent concern about opiates in general, not just because of their abuse potential and the fact that we don't have evidence that they actually work in fibromyalgia, is the fact that um, there's something called opiate-induced hyperalgesia that's becoming increasingly recognized, um, you know, of course, in animal models, but also now in some human models of pain, so that we are perhaps inadvertently perpetuating chronic pain in some of our patients. Don, do you? Yeah, and there's even sort of pathophysiologic evidence that uh, opioid receptors in general are, 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 are adequate here and are, are not. We don't have as much evidence, for example, of 
uh, abnormalities in that system as we do in uh, some of the other pain and mood regulating systems. I, I think it's just such a problem. I, I you know every day when I see fibromyalgia patients, I often see people who have been on chronic opioid therapy, and I know for clinicians out there, these patients feel desperate, and uh, you you know you you don't want to deny them pain reduction, but. Uh, I think most of us in the field now are, uh, are, uh, are strongly recommending to stay away from uh, opioid agents. Right. I, I think that's true. And it, but, you know, the reality of our practice is that sometimes, especially people who have multiple pain conditions and comorbidities, that sometimes uh, we do turn to this class of medication. But I would strongly recommend that, you know, that a lot of education be given to patients and also try to avoid the chronic daily use of them. Um, sometimes we will turn to tramadol as a kind of a first step. Um, it is a weaker opiate agonist. Um, there is some evidence for efficacy in fibromyalgia, probably related to its effects on serotonin or epinephrine, as it turns out, rather than the opiate receptor. But um, sometimes we will go to that agent. Um, in general, we just really try to minimize the use of those drugs. You know, of course, now that we have other options for our patients, I think we should really try these other approaches first um, before going to an opiate. Okay, um, looks like some other questions we have. Um, you know, one, one of the, uh, the questions that came up here, Don, I think that you can address well is um, a person sort of mentioned, what if you have a marginally significant 1 to 160 dilution ANA test mixed pattern? Um, how might that affect your management of this patient? Well, again, I would strongly discourage uh, talking about management with this as far as uh, even ordering the test. Uh, one, uh, a low titer ANA uh, has a very poor predictive value unless there's a high suspicion of uh, lupus. Uh, 10 to 15 percent of healthy females, uh, a little less with males, uh, have uh, low titer positive ANA. So there, there are not good screening tests, and it's one of the reasons I, I always preach that in rheumatology, there are really no such thing as a screening test. In a condition like this, I, I do think a sedimentation rate or a CRP will help differentiate an inflammatory disorder like polymyalgia rheumatica from a non-inflammatory disorder, but uh, I, I strongly uh, recommend, unless there's a good suspicion of a systemic connective tissue disease, not doing ANA and rheumatoid factor routinely. Uh, here I think it's more if, if a person is on the fence whether you really think uh, uh, an individual has fibromyalgia or might in the back of your mind have a, uh, a rheumatic condition, I think it's worthwhile getting a rheumatology consultation in that situation rather than starting to draw a whole lot of blood tests because in general they'll just be confusing. Right. Um, you know, our patient Jane did take some supplements recommended by her trainer, and um, one of our participants asked about nutritional supplements. Um, does something like omega-3 fatty acids or others, are these helpful in fibromyalgia? And um, you know, it's a good question. We don't really know the answer to that. In fact, if you look at um, studies of complementary or alternative medicine in fibromyalgia, it looks like there may be some support. Again, the trials are very 
um, you know, limited in their design. And uh, so we can't be very conclusive yet. Um, but magnesium supplementation had some moderate support. Um, s adenosyl L-methionine also had some a support that's SAMI in short term. Uh, so those two supplements, perhaps uh, some evidence to support in fibromyalgia, but um, otherwise very limited. In general, you know, again, very little, little on diet. Uh, uh, what There is really no specific diet for fibromyalgia. Um, so in general, we just try to recommend, um, you know, well-balanced with lots of fruits and vegetables as is typically recommended for all of us. Um, so obviously, these are these are areas for a need for more research. Don, do you have anything else to add there? No, I agree fully. Okay. Another question about long-term use of zolpidin for sleep disturbances in fibromyalgia. Of course, this would be off-label. Um, there were some short-term studies of this compound, zolpidin, for sleep um, that were conducted, and uh, there is evidence that those medications, at least in the short term, do improve sleep and actually um, did relieve some of the daytime fatigue associated with fibromyalgia, but did not have any effect on pain. Um, so, of course, as monotherapy, they would not be useful, but perhaps as adjunctive treatment, um, it might be helpful. As far as long-term, we have no data on long-term use of zolpidem. So, um, there is an area, again, we would probably need, need more work. But I have to say, in my clinic, we do uh, use these medications long-term, and they seem to be, um, you know, maintain their efficacy over time. Don, do you have other experience with that? No, I, I would agree. Of course, if we're, you know, trying to kill two birds with one stone, treating the pain as well as the sleep disturbances, the hope would be with medicines like uh, uh, the uh, alpha-delta, like pregabalin or even amitriptyline at nighttime, uh, it, you might get some improvement in your sleep, which would be adequate, uh, and you're also getting improvement in pain. Um, we have another question about combining milnesopran and pregabalin. Uh, yes, we do that combination as well. Milnesopran is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It's, um, it was indi got the indication for fibromyalgia here in the U.S. in 2009. Um, and so, uh, yes, we do combine it with pregabalin in the same way that we discussed in general combining the alpha-2-delta ligand and the SNRI. Um, so that, I think, is an option for your patient if they don't respond to either drug alone. Don, would you agree with that? I would. Um, there was a question, uh, too, about paresthesias and what's typical for fibromyalgia. I know that's an area that you've studied somewhat, Don, in your work. So, uh, what are so, the kind of paresthesias? That uh, numbness, tingling, burning symptoms are are endorsed by 60 to 80% of patients in both studies and internet surveys, so they're very common. The majority of patients, however, in my experience, do not have clear-cut focal neurologic abnormalities on a, on a cursory exam that I do, or even when I send them for neurologic evaluation or uh, studies like EMG nerve conduction tests, which I don't think necessarily should be done frequently. Now, there was a study published last year in one of our journals, Arthritis and Rheumatism, from um, the state of Washington, where they actually found that uh, a significant number of patients had not only the, the symptoms, but some abnormal signs on neurologic exam. They were somewhat subtle, but uh, I, I think this is an area ripe for more uh, research. 
And there's a question about evidence for effectiveness of meditation or mindfully based stress reduction training in treating this condition. Um, and there have been some studies and some re recent meta-analyses reviews. One just came out this year, uh, 2010, which suggests, again, some moderate support for meditative type approaches in treating fibromyalgia. But as I indicated earlier with the supplement studies, a methodologic quality was generally kind of low. So, um, you know, in terms of whether there were adequate controls or numbers of patients involved, et cetera. So I think we do need, you know, better studies. But I think that at least there was some support for, for that approach as well as for things like massage and even, um, you know, bathing in warm waters, which they like to do apparently over in Europe and uh, in the Middle East. But uh, so... You know, again, with these uh, more uh, non-pharmacologic complementary therapies, uh, you know, there are some things clearly that patients can try. We encourage patients to, you know, try what they can on their own. But most of the evidence that we have, the best evidence we have is for exercise and forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, which we discussed in our talk. Don, would you... I would agree with that, I, and I would say we're, we're learning more about some, you know, disciplines that I would say maybe combine these, like uh, uh, Tai Chi or um, yoga type, uh, and, and it's hard sometimes to separa separate the exercise, the relaxation component when you, when you try and do these studies in, in, in a randomized, uh, controlled fashion, but uh, I, I'm much more enthusiastic about uh, those types of techniques, and I am uh, is something that's more passive. Right. And it looks like we perhaps uh, have time for one more question. Um, and it looks, I, I, I think uh, somebody asked about, a, yeah, here we go, a familial or genetic link um, predisposition for developing fibromyalgia. And yes, there is now evidence of a familial link in fibromyalgia. It was a study that we conducted uh, here in Cincinnati where we did find that fibromyalgia was actually highly familial. We compared um, patients with fibromyalgia and their first-degree relatives with those individuals with rheumatoid arthritis and first-degree relatives, and we found that um, there was an eight-time, that family members of patients with fibromyalgia were eight times more likely to have fibromyalgia than the family members of individuals with rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, subsequently, there's been some work uh, trying to identify the candidate genes or um, the genetic underpinnings of fibromyalgia and chronic pain in general. And I think there's now growing evidence that pain sensitivity in general is inherited, probably um, partially genetically um, transmitted. So I think stay tuned because um, I believe, you know, we'll probably unravel some of the genes involved in pain sensitivity, and it will likely involve hundreds of genes. It's not going to be a simple um, uh, process, but uh, there's always already been some progress in identifying uh, genes, especially those that are involving the monoamines, including norepinephrine and serotonin, that seem to be um, associated with fibromyalgia. Okay, so th that was very interesting and helpful. So I'd like to thank Dr. Goldenberg for joining me today and especially for helping us translate this latest evidence to improvements in our practices. And thank you to our audience for joining us today. And if you are not able to get your question answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com by June 2nd. 
Dr. Goldenberg and I will answer questions online over the next two weeks and post responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash 460. I'm Dr. Arnold, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. I hope you are able to incorporate this evidence in your practice and improve the care of your patients.